Hello, friends. It is Pastor Courtney back here with you on the PCOM podcast. And I have a wonderful special guest with us today, Doug Bursch, who is co-pastor of Evergreen Foursquare Church up in Auburn, Washington, and author of a book I think everybody on this planet should read. His book is called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. Doug, thank you for being here. Oh, it is my pleasure to be with you today. I'm looking forward to this interview. So first question, um, why did you write this book? I think we all get along very well on social media. (laughs) I think everybody really knows the answer to why I wrote this book. I think any human who is on social media realizes that it's becoming more polarizing, more toxic. We're running into these conflicts with family members, loved ones, church members. And at some level, we we see the value of social media, but there's kind of this powerlessness where we don't know what to do about this. Like, how how can we not be caught in the fray of this polarizing reality? Yes, it feels really fraught because if you see people behaving badly online and you wade into it, you quickly learn, oh, maybe that was not the best strategy, right? Like everyone play nice and now the the guns get turned on you. But I think as Christians in a public space and as we're coming, please Jesus, out of a pandemic, as we come out of this pandemic, I think we have been pushed into digital spaces even more. And with a contentious political season and with all of the ins and outs of the pandemic, it feels like it's all ratcheted up a notch, even since you wrote this book, which I think was only a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, one of the things, I'm not someone who's just anti-technology, anti-social media. I want to guilt everyone to just you know get rid of your phones and go Amish 2.0. That's not my heart. Uh, but I think the strength and weakness of social media is it exaggerates the best of humanity, and it also exaggerates the worst. And so I went into this process. I actually did a bit of doctoral work on social media, on technology, on just how any technologies influence humanity and how we communicate the gospel. And sometimes when we look at social media, we think, well, people are just getting worse and we blame humans. And whether humans are getting worse or not, we kind of, you know, the world's just getting worse and people are more angry. We need more of God. And well, maybe that's an issue, but I think there's a bigger issue that some technology actually exaggerates aspects of humanity. And I wanted to get at that because I think we've all found ourselves in places we didn't want to be where we're just posting an opinion and suddenly we're in this big argument and then we're just, I don't even want to be a part of this. What is this about? So I wanted to help people understand why maybe it's bringing out the worst in your aunt or your uncle or why you yourself might be struggling with having genuine reconciling conversations. So that was the genuine goal here to look at the technology. And then as a pastor who believes in reconciliation, how do we integrate our theology into the practice of being online? I, I love that that perspective. I, I think it is so tempting to just say, let's just throw it all out and we should be pen and paper people forever only and send letters or to just soak ourselves in it. So it's the water we swim in and we can't parse what's actually helpful for us as a community, what's actually helpful for us as people of faith, or these are just tools. How do we use them well? Um, so I'd love for you to unpack, why does this make my uncle so crazy? Or why does this make my aunt so crazy? I'm not throwing my personal family members <laughs> under the bus, but just as an example, I think many of us have logged on to post a cute picture of the bird in our garden or of our kid and waded into this huge political fight 
and thought, whoa, 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 I don't even, I've had seasons where I just sign off for months on end because I can't do it anymore. It feels so exhausting. Yeah, well, it's a very big topic. And for each person, we have our own personal uh, story. So I try to, in the book, not do a one-size-fits-all, but we look at many different ways that the technology actually influences how we abide together. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, a media theorist Marshall McLuhan said, it's like in the late 1970s, he said, the medium is the message. And at first, when you hear that, like, well, what does that mean? The medium is the message. Well, Christians don't take this seriously enough that the medium we use, whether it's radio or television or the printing press or the internet, changes what we communicate and how we communicate. And sometimes Christians have this idea, well, I'm just communicating the gospel. It doesn't matter whether it's the radio or television or internet. I'm going to be able to communicate the truth. The truth is the truth. But the technology itself has boundaries to it of what we can do or can't do. And so I talk about many things. For instance, mostly uh, our social media communication is disincarnate. It's not, we're not there in person with the individual. And often when we fight, we're writing. Uh, we've done a lot of Zoom things lately, so you can see someone's eyes and you can get a certain context with that. But if you notice on Facebook or Twitter or any, any area where people begin to fight, it becomes very text-based, right? They get longer and longer posts. Well, I talk about how even our mind, our brain, uh, we use different parts of our brain when we read than when we see something, when we visually experience, when we hear something. So even the concept of just arguing with someone online, one, with text, I'm sure you've run into this in ministry, can you understand tone with text? Do you know if someone's being sarcastic, if they're being angry? In our church, for instance, I will never send an email to anyone for a conflict. Conflict is always verbal in the sense I will, I'll talk about it because people can't read intent. So I can write something like, hey, I need to see you this week. If they think I'm angry at them, they read it with what? I need to see you this week in this angry voice. If they think we have a good relationship, they'll be like, hey, I need to see you this week. That's all in the tone. So what happens on social media? Someone asks a question, and if we feel threatened or we don't know about our relationship, immediately we begin, that's an accusation. And so then we respond with an accusation. So we can't tell tone with things written. We also can't see facial expressions. Studies have shown that empathy comes out by looking at people's eyes. When you see in someone's eyes or their facial cues, it helps you feel empathetic. And we know that you can think back to when you were a young kid, the first time you said something that hurt someone, you know, the first memory of that. I remember saying something very inappropriate, wrong to a, a young black boy at the time. We were both like in kindergarten. It's one of my earliest memories. And I remember saying something to him where I didn't even understand what the words meant. And it wasn't as extreme as maybe some people think, but I knew I'd said something inappropriate and I saw his face change. And in that facial expression, it totally impacted me on what I did next. In fact, I'm still thinking about it based on that facial expression. Well, we don't see that when we're talking with someone. You know, we're just posting something. They might be fearful, tearful, shaking, nervous, afraid, or they might be angry, fiery-eyed, wanting to attack us. Depending upon our perception of the world or the category we put people in, we assume what they're like. We assume the intent of their words. We assume their facial expressions. And this goes on and on. And so now we're doing all our arguments about really important things online, yet we're disincarnate. We're not in present with the person. We don't hear their, their vocal expressions. We don't see the, their face. 
We don't even know the motivations because now we're in this process of arguing a point and immediately categorizing someone into, are you far right or far left? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you liberal? Are you conservative? Are you for me or are you against me? So that's just a little part of the stuff that I get into when it comes to why we're becoming so polarizing is we can't read each other as well as we can in person. That's that's such a good word. I, I think as a pastor, one of the things I've gradually started to learn is often when people are going off about something online, and like you said, it's just words. It's not it's not incarnational in the same way. What you don't see, what you're not able to see, is often underneath whatever they're they're going on about in such a strong way is either hurt or anger or fear. Yeah. Right. So it's one of those three things. And often when you meet with them in person, you can get the story. Well, I'm so passionate about this because X, Y, and Z happened to me when I was a kid or, you know, and, and suddenly you can unravel some of those threads and, and there's a person before you instead of just an, an ideology or um, some, some anger that's spouting off. And, and you and I connected for the first time on Twitter. That's, that's uh, sent a little podcast invite and here we are. Um, but one of the things I appreciate about your social media presence is you don't just write about this, you model this. And I've seen you with people say, you know, that didn't come off right. I, you know, I need to, let's, let's take a step back or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to close down this thread. And, and you just, you are a very winsome presence in a space that often is very polarizing. And mm-hmm. I think as a public figure to model that, not just in doing it perfectly, but when things start to go a certain direction, be like, no, 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 we're good. You know, like you and me are good. I, I had an interaction with, someone on Twitter just a few days ago. And he and I, we weren't getting angry, but we had misunderstood each other. And then we had this series of posts with each other. Like, are we good? We're good. Are we good? Well, that was funny. You know, in the the end that he sent me a gif that just said, well, that was weird, right? Like the whole thing of two well-intentioned, thoughtful Christian people. He also is in ministry could misunderstand things that were just purely given to be kind and funny. And even then missed each other. It's so yeah. easy to do. So well, what do you recommend when we're fighting with someone online? Just say, well, Hey, let's take this <laughs> offline. Hey, where do we go? Because they're well, really wrong, Doug. And I need to tell them how wrong they are. Right. It's really hard to reconcile with people when they're just terribly wrong and you're right. Well, it's, there's so many issues to unpack here. One, everybody has their own personality, their own calling and their own gifting. I'm a white middle-class male. And so I can say, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do, but I don't know your story. And so it's I need to be very careful that I don't project whatever I think I'm called to do upon other people. Uh, but, but the issue to me is, do we want to be reconciling or do we want to be right? And that's a difference. Ooh, uh, as that's a good. Pastor, say that again. Do we want to be rec- reconciling or do we want to be right? Um, we are called to the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that the, the, every Christian, we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And reconciliation at some level is this, that I want to communicate in a way that uh, helps people see God and come closer to God, to be reconciled to God. And reconciliation has that person-to-person aspect, right? So I want to communicate in a way that breaks down every dividing wall of hostility between us. So my first interaction with someone and my last interaction isn't to be proven right. That's not the goal uh, for, for me to win an argument. The goal is reconciliation that I want when they interact with me for them to think better about God, to be more open for God to be working in their life. And I also want them to know that I'm someone who's for them. I'm not against them. And even if I disagree with them passionately about their opinions, I'm communicating this not because I want to win and want them to lose, 
but that I actually love them. And I believe communicating this truth will help them come to that truth and come to light and life. And this is something Christians have struggled with distinguishing in, in the political era that we live in. Every Christian's political. There's nothing wrong with being political. As an American, you should be political in the sense of we vote for our elected leaders, so you need to know what your politics are and who you want to vote for. But the issue of being political versus partisan is a bigger issue. The partisan spirit, which I don't think Christians are supposed to be, is partisanship does this. I want my side to win and your side to lose. I want the 50.5% of the vote or whatever so that we can have control and you don't have control. It's our America, not your America. It's my way, not your way. Partisanship works with we want to win and we want you to lose. That's not the heart of Christians. My goal is I don't want anyone to lose. And if I'm going to communicate my politics, I do it with the purpose of I love the person who disagrees. I want them to be reconciled to God if I believe at some level their politics are separating them from God. And I want us to be reconciled one to another. If we don't distinguish that, then we lose our witness as Christians. It can't just be what's right and what's wrong, because we all know that truth without love ceases being truth, and love without truth ceases being love. Both of those things are uniquely held in tension. So that's my heart online. By the way, as a pastor, once you preach it, you have to live it. So part of me is like, oh boy, I shouldn't have wrote this book. I got to, you know, I got to stay uh, together and be appropriate. But it's good for me to have that accountability. The words I've written, I have to be accountable to. But ultimately, I'm not accountable to those words. I'm accountable to God. I want, like in this interview right now, if I'm communicating a way that keeps you from knowing the love of God and is putting up a dividing wall of hostility between us, then I am not living my created purpose. I am supposed to image God on earth, which means when people see me, they say, what is God's love like? Well, God's love is a lot like how Doug just treated uh, that host on that podcast. You know, How is God's grace? How is God's kindness? As Christians, that's what we're supposed to be seen as online. And that's why the online world has a tremendous opportunity. Some of the most important issues of our time are being talked about online. And Christians are not just called to have a better opinion. We're called to have a better spirit. And if we don't have a better spirit, we don't have anything. We just have another ideology. And People are not transformed through another ideology. They're transformed through the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ. And we make room for that in our communication. At least that's my advocacy. Yes. Yes. I love that you said you want people to think better of God. You want mm. to, not better of Doug, but better of God. I, as I read the gospel accounts of Jesus, people wanted to hang out with him. And I think as I see a lot of Christians behaving online, I'm like, I don't want to hang out with you. You know, I'm kind of afraid of you. You don't seem like a particularly nice person. And yeah. that wasn't Jesus. The fact that the fact that tax collectors and sinners were like, let's have dinner. There was something about Jesus where they knew he was for them, which doesn't mean you're excusing sin, which doesn't mean you're calling wrong, right? None of those things, but to be able to be this presence that is for someone. Can you unpack that a little bit? What well, does that here's the look deal. like? You know, and I have a whole chapter on when justice demands conflict. And I'm not just talking about everybody get along and pretend that there's not sin in the world and let injustices reign. So that's not my heart. But I'll hear people say this. Well, Jesus turned over tables, right? So that's why I'm kind of causing conflict, right? 
Well, one of the reasons we're aware of Jesus turning over tables is it seems very different to what he did all the other times. So it contrasted what our basic understanding of Jesus is that, wow, that's surprising. And some people are just known as the table turnovers. They just every day they go in and they turn over a table. They're not known as love. So Jesus is known as love. And so that gives him some authority to turn over those tables. Also, he doesn't do it that often. He does it led by the Holy Spirit. And he also turns over tables for the purpose of reconciling people. That in the temple, uh, and I, you know, there's some stuff I didn't even put in the book, but I've been thinking about this. Uh, he goes after the pigeon merchants and the, the money changers. Well, the whole issue is foreigners, if they came into uh, the temple in order to do their sacrifice, they had to exchange their money. So they're making a terrible exchange rate. So that's sinning against the poor and the foreigner. Uh, what's with the pigeons? The pigeons, is, that's the smallest sacrifice, but that's the smallest animal sacrifice. There's actually a smaller sacrifice that if you couldn't even afford an animal, you could bring some sort of basically concoction of a, a flower, a, a grain or something before the Lord. The fact that Jesus cast out the pigeon merchants is he's telling the whole temple leadership is you're requiring people to buy these pigeons when they shouldn't. They should be able to feed their family. They should be able to just do basic provision. They've traveled all this way to honor God. I don't want that in there. I want you to accept the offering they can actually give. So the turning over tables was that this activity was keeping people from what? Coming closer to God. That's reconciliation from it being a house of prayer, of intimacy. And also, what were those money changers and those pigeon merchants doing? They were causing divisions between one and another. So it's not Jesus just being angry and punitive He's confronting them at a very dangerous place to be in, that they are supposedly authorities on God's kingdom, yet they're doing something that is separating people from intimacy with God and connection one to another. So even our turning over tables, the motivation when we call out injustices must be for those people that we care about the oppressed and the oppressor. And this is the one I'll just throw in. I know people get upset with me with this, but Jesus also died for every single person in that room that he turned over their tables. And so if you're not willing to love every person you confront with that same sacrificial love, then maybe you need a little grace in the way you communicate your disagreements with others. And I'm speaking to me in this. If, if you feel condemned or, you know, I don't want you to feel condemned, but I I got to live this out this week. And I'm sure someone's going to annoy me and say something where I want to flip over that table but in doing that, do I love them? Do I want them to grow close to the Lord? Do I want us to grow closer together? Or am I just flipping over a table because I want to have nothing to do with them? That is not why Christ brought his justice or his, what, righteous anger into the temple. That is a word, sir. You should be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so appreciate that framing of it because that is the passage people go to. Like, Jesus got angry. Yes, yes. This is an isolated incident, you know, and this is not Jesus every day. And, and so I think it, it brings up the question, then, how are we to engage on social media? You're, the title of your book is Posting Peace. Does that mean I just, I put Bible verses up every day, but only the ones that won't offend people? Like, how, how do I engage thoughtfully in this digital space where, where many of us can make these wonderful connections, can meet new, new friends, new pastors up in Washington, and, and can grow the church, build the church, encourage people. But what is the proper framework, I guess, for us when we when we think about how to do that? Is it just Bible verses all the time? How do we engage well? Well, by the way, if you're on Twitter, it's not Bible verses because this tells you the problem with our technological age. You can't fit most Bible verses into one tweet. 
which Jesus tells you, wept every right. day. <laughs> so it just tells you even there, like the medium is influencing what we can even communicate, which has implications on what Christians are communicating. Uh, you know, in the in the book, every chapter, I ask questions for people to process their the motivations behind what they're doing. And then I ask about developing your own peacemaking plan, because the technology will send us towards polarization. So we must have an intentionality on, on what we're doing. So here's like a simple, here's just a few that I have, and I'm hoping people will develop things I haven't even thought of. Uh, but one, I always communicate, or I, I should never say always. My mom was like, don't ever say always, because it's not <laughs> always true. But I try to do this. I try to communicate with anyone as if they're in the room with me. How would I, as a pastor, for instance, to try to interact with them as if they just walked into the doors of our church? Uh, you know, they came to the doors of our church and they say something to me that's very like, oh, I don't agree with that. Am I going to start arguing with them before they come in and, you know, having a big fight? Or am I going to do this? You know, you're welcome. Come in. Am I going to try to build a relationship with them? So that idea, and I even do this about uh, celebrities. I had a talk show for five years where we would talk about the daily news. And, I, I, you know, if Lindsay Lohan is having a mental breakdown, that's not fodder for my entertainment. That's a human made in the image of God. So if I talk about her, I want to talk in a way that if she was in the room, she would feel loved, even if there was a correction in that behavior. We are so used to as a culture, almost we're like little talk show hosts where we take the content of the world and we use it as fodder for uh, our friends and whoever follows us. People are not fodder. They're made in the image of God. So that's a huge issue. Talk about them as if they're in the room with me. And practically too, like if they're in the room with me and I said something jerky, they could punch me. They could reach across the table and punch me. So I want to have that kind of integrity. Uh, the other ones is the idea, am I communicating truth and love? Uh, am I com communicating the wholeness of who I am? I'll, I'll ask some of your uh, listeners to do this. Go back over the last uh, two weeks, you can go farther, two months of post on whatever social media format you use the most. Does that represent who you truly are? Here's a pastor thing. If you die today and at your funeral, I were to read your last 20 posts, would you feel good about that? Would it represent who you are? And what happens with social media is it often only does a part of us. Some people are just always doing politics. And that might be a part of you, but is that all of you? Is that the heart of you? Is that who you truly are? And is that how you want people to see you? And so that's a great way to see it. Again, is the wholeness of me being expressed or is just a part of me being expressed? I always want my first and last interaction with someone to be reconciling. So the first goal is to build relational equity. By the way, if somebody tells you you're doing something wrong and they're right, but you don't know them, how often do you receive that advice? Like as a parent, if someone in the grocery store tells you something you're doing wrong, even if they're right and you don't know them, what's your first response? Like, how dare you? You don't know me. We reject it. So even in our own lives, if we want to actually influence someone, they have to trust us first. So the first interactions and maybe the first many interactions is building relational equity. And then when we have a connection, then we can talk about some of that stuff. I notice you're a little harsh in your parenting. Uh, and then they trust you that they know you love them, right? Well, same thing online. So if someone's upset with me online, the first point is to let them know I'm safe and they can communicate that and I'm not going to harm them and hurt them then maybe they'll let me speak into their life. But I don't think the first goal is to validate my ego by tearing down their argument. I can say what I believe. I can say, you know, I disagree with you, but thanks for sharing that. I'd like to talk more about it. That's a relationship. 
Uh, if it's just point counterpoint debate team stuff, that's not a relationship. And how many people's hearts really get changed when a stranger tries to argue you into the kingdom of God? Yeah, it's generally not the most effective strategy. <laughs> no. Food, food is more effective than arguing. Yes, Feed people, yes. love people. I, my husband and I uh, go back and forth on Twitter a bit. And one of our marital rules is we don't want to put anything on Twitter that we wouldn't say from the pulpit. Yeah. And we have a really, you know, a very open relationship with our congregation. They know we're funny. They know we we say funny things sometimes, sometimes not on purpose, you know, sometimes <laughs> I just put my foot in my mouth. And so we have the type of relationship where we ha- we can joke with our congregation. So a lot of my tweets are just jokes and, and things right. like that. But I always want to make sure, um, you know, there's never a doubt in the mind of anyone in my congregation that I would share part of their story without their permission or that I would use my pastoring as a fodder for social media, right? So it's making sure there's that piece of integrity for me. This is a great point. And I've seen people do this, but even without social media, I, when I speak of my kids, I speak about my kids if, as if they're in the room. Yeah. I don't I don't ever ridicule or... Now, I understand the concept. Maybe there's a crisis in parenting and you talk to someone you love and you're like, I don't know what to do with the fact that my daughter's upset with me. I mean, I understand that counsel. But I see people, just among other adults, saying things about their kids that would hurt their kids tremendously if they heard that in person or their spouse. And this is one of the strengths and weaknesses of social media is immediately you have access to this online community. So you can have a crisis and you can see this. Okay, there's... Maybe you're just with your family on vacation and there's that tension. Everybody's run into that where everyone in the family seems to want to do something else and they're upset with what you're doing. And maybe that's not true or not, but you just feel kind of isolated or you're upset. Well, before social media, you got to work that out with your family. But now you can just go online and complain to people and people can give you comfort. And it's not about whether they're saying good things or bad things. It's about where am I supposed to give my best energy? And instead of giving our energy to learning how to reconcile with that group or communicate our needs, our emotional wants, now we're having people online take care of our emotional needs when really that should be an area that you grow in your marriage. We find this when people are bored in a room, right? When you were bored at a party and you had nowhere to go, you had to find a way to interact. Now you don't have to. You don't have to deal with your boredom. So you go immediately to your phone and you do something that, you know, entertains you or interests you. It might have value, but the reality is it keeps you from growing in those purposeful, maturing realities with the relationships around you. In church, you know, just what do I do during greeting time? I can just go to my phone. Well, I don't want you to feel condemned in that, but we need to grow and develop in how we exist with people in the room. And Mm. what's happening with social media is we can go to the easiest place to avoid the harder places of human existence. That That is so true. I, I think when my defenses are down is when I'm more likely to log on. You know, I'm, I'm in this season. You have four kids that are that are older. They're on their way out. And our kids are still very young. And the hardest hour of the day is the hour before bedtime. I am tapped out. I've been working and parenting all day. My husband is tapped out. And that's when I want to be on Twitter. And that's when my kids need me the most. They're the ones yeah. in the room. Twitter will be there after bedtime, you know, but to have that self-control or maybe I don't have the self-control. So put the phone away to, to try to pay attention to who's in front of me. And, and I love your point that even when we're interacting digitally to have that frame around it of, would I be saying this if the person was in the room? I, a couple of years ago, I posted something on Twitter um, and it was just a funny, oh, my mom is not very tech savvy post. I did not think my mom was on Twitter. My mom is on Twitter. And she saw it and she texted me and I felt 
horrible. I didn't say anything terrible about her. It was one of those like, oh, you know, different generations and, and I'm better at technology. You know, it was a very, it was making me look good, making her not look good and not in a devastating sort of way, in a way that she was able to laugh about. But how, how dare I assume I could put something about a dear family member on there because I didn't think she would see it. Um, well, and it would have been wrong even if she hadn't seen yeah. it. It was not okay to share. And I really want to be careful to not make someone feel bad that they use social media for help at the end of a difficult day. That I don't think that in and of itself is wrong. The context to me but, is... Doug, I don't want my parenting, I don't want my kid's oh, memory to be every night on the way to bed, mom stared at her phone, which oh, oh, I've yeah. been in a pattern of. So you're convicting me in a way yeah. that I appreciate I needed that word. So carry well, on. Okay. Well, I'm a middle child, so I got to make everyone happy. So if I make someone <laughs> else, I get worried about the other. But the, the reality to me, though, the issue is not whether I go to other people, but does that lead to intimacy with those who've been entrusted to my care? So you can go to someone for counsel that leads you to greater intimacy, or you can go to the social media world that leads to greater distance. Uh, one of the things that's happening in our with technology is we're all communicating and focusing in on and looking at different things. So think about with the TV. Uh, everybody at general would kind of be watching the same show. You maybe had one television in the house, depending upon the generation, how many years we go back. And so then there's a shared experience. And then through that shared experience, we have conversations. Uh, It's kind of the family mill concept. Why is the family mill okay? And we don't do that in our house, but the strength of that is we're together, we're all doing the same thing, and then conversations rise up from that. What's happening now? Uh, And you're going to find this with your kids as they get older. Uh, One is on YouTube. One is uh, doing a video game with friends, you know, online with their Switch. Someone else, like my son can listen to the audio of The Office while he's playing a video game, while someone on Zoom he's talking to about something else. Um, So I'm doing something else. I'm old fashioned television show or something. My wife is doing something else. She's on Facebook or on some forum about plants or something, right? What's the problem with that? Are those bad activities? No, but we're losing the ability to have intimacy because I can't talk about what my wife's doing. Uh, She doesn't know what I'm watching. My kids are doing something else. So we have to create spaces where we're doing the same thing. Or if we're not doing the same thing, where we have conversations that I want to know what my kids are doing on the phone, not because I'm trying to catch them or, you know, be this overseer and making them look at good stuff and not bad stuff. I just want to be able to have a conversation with them, to unite with them. So what was on Reddit? What are you talking about? What's going on? That's interesting. Tell me more. This is what's happening with technology. The strength of it, it allows us to pursue any interest we want. But in pursuing our individualistic interests, it's kind of hurting us with this collective identity of family, of marriage, of church, of city, of community. And that's something we need to know. How do we facilitate spaces? You know, for our family, we go on walks together. And during the walk, it's like, hey, let's not use our phones. And it has to be the kids in agreement. If I'm being the lawgiver, it's not going to work. But if I can be like, and they are in agreement, like, yeah, this makes sense. This is good. We enjoy this. We talk. Then we have a way to unite. And then we are still going to go and watch. I'm not going to make him watch my boring show. And I'm certainly not going to play his video game. You know, So we've, we figure out how to exist with each other. This is the strength and the weakness of the internet. It allows us to have more connection with more people than ever before. But it also weakens our ability to have strong connections with the people who exist right around us. Yeah, the, I I appreciate your attention to the the ebb and flow, 
right? That it's not either or it's, it's this opportunity to be together and also enjoy those things separately, but not at the expense of the, the relationship, not at the expense of the, the intimacy. Well, here's a principle, and this works with any technology. Uh, Marshall McLuhan said, every technology extends human capacity and it weakens the human capacity it extends. Now that sounds a little complicated. I'll give an example. Uh, the car extends the foot. You say, well, how does it extend the foot? Well, uh, we walk on our feet, we go a certain amount of distance. The car is created and it extends our human capacity to walk. That's a good thing, right? We can go more places. What does it do? It weakens our ability to walk. So it extended the ability because now we're lazy. We don't want to go anywhere. You know, we got to exercise because we're in these cars all the time, right? Uh, this is what happens with every technology. This will help you in a church, in, in your business. Whenever you bring a new technology in, like we start doing our council meetings online or through Zoom, there's strengths to it. It allows you to connect easier, but you also need to look at how does this weaken some of these other capacities? Uh, for instance, ease of getting together weakens our ability to do difficult things. So if I can just click on the screen and do a Zoom meeting, that's easier. Uh, it's good, though, when you have to set something on a schedule and say, we're going to meet at 7 p.m. at the church and I have to rearrange my life and make sure things work. That process of making time for something, giving it energy, learning how to do that, that's good. Well, the more we make something easier in gathering, the, the weaker we will be in our ability to learn how to set aside times that are meaningful and important. So every technology extends something. Like, here's another thing. Social media allows you and I to meet. If social media wasn't there, we would never know each other. That's a strength. So I have more access to relationships than ever before. But with that, because I have access to more relationships, we're often not working on going through conflicts together mm -hmm. because we don't have to. Uh, because if we can you just bother find someone me, else. I can mute you, Doug. Yeah. It takes one yeah. second, click of a button, and I never right. have to see anything you post. You don't exist for me anymore. Exactly. And you can find other people to fill that role. Now, before technology, and let's say before the car, you had very few people. And so you had your neighbors, you had your local church and where you could walk. And one of the reasons people reconciled is because they had to. Because if I don't find a way to get along with my neighbor, I have no one to talk to. If I don't find a way to get along with our church, there's no other church to go to. There's just two churches in town. So uh, they weren't more moral back then, more righteous back then. And by the way, that was bad in many cases where they'd have a controlling neighbor that everyone had to make sure they pleased or a bad pastor that everyone had to work around. But we don't have to do that anymore. So the strength is, if I have a person I don't like, I can just go to someone I like. But what we're doing is we keep isolating whenever a conflict occurs. And so I just go to another church. I go to another online community. I mute you, follow someone else. So we're not learning how to do what? The difficult work of building really meaningful relationships because the technology has made it easy to develop these superficial or weak tie relationships. That's that's one of the puzzles that we're working through, and maybe you are as well in your church after, you know, the season where it really wasn't safe to gather for a time. And then, you know, vaccines came out and we figured out better masking and things like that. And now we're we're back in person, but we're we're in person, we're outdoors, we're indoors and we're digital. And we're finding that for a segment of our population, these digital services are a lifeline. I've heard from older folks in the church who have mobility issues that said, I haven't seen worship live in three years. Please never take away the digital live stream. Mm -hmm. And then I hear from folks who are my age and they're super mobile and they're like, you know what? I just don't like to get dressed up on a Sunday morning. So I'll probably be digital forever. And we're like, no, no, no. 
we need you and you need yeah. us. And there's, there's something that's lost if you're not in the room and if it's convenience versus need. And how do you walk through that with your congregation as a pastor? Because we don't want to shame the people who genu- genuinely can't come. And I also, as a working parent, you know, the day my kid wakes up with a cough, I'm so grateful to have digital church so I can yeah. stay connected. But when it becomes, eh, it's easier to stay home and you're not seeing people in person and you're not making those connections and your prayers aren't strengthening the person sitting in the pew next to you who needs to see your face. Yeah. How do you walk that road? Yeah, I think we're all trying to figure that out. My, For instance, my mom has always attended our church. I've been pastoring there for 24 years. And in the last two years, she's not been able to come. And I don't know if she's ever going to be able to come again. So she only deals with us online because of her immune compromised state. Yeah. So there's a great value there. Uh, One of the things that happens on social media is now filtering out more to our culture. uh, The concept of people use social media for networked individualism. There's uh, Mm. scholars by the name of Rainey and Wellman. They talked about this in a positive light. I don't think it's as positive. So what's the strength of social media? I got a problem, an individual problem, and I can find a network that meets that problem. Or I have a desire, and I can find a network that meets that desire. And it can be as simple as, I love Star Wars, so I can find a Star Wars community that's just all about Star Wars. It can also be very powerful. I've been abused by a a church, and I find other people who've been abused by a church. The reality is, though, that's still uniting with people on one issue, and an issue about my need. And that's not wrong. It's like, I have that need. But Uh, the concept of network individualism, we begin to see people as products to fulfill our needs. And we relate Mm -hmm. with them as much as they fulfill our need Uh, versus building diverse communities with different needs, different thoughts, different understanding. And my first book, Posting Peace, is about why we gather in the church. And you see this trajectory as well, where church gathering became more and more about it meeting my needs. And the ultimate expression of that is I don't really need to gather. I find God in nature. I find God at home and my work. So if you do it just based on needs, no matter how much the church tries to meet needs, it's never enough because church won't meet your needs. To go to church is not about me. Ultimately, it's about building a community. And this is the part that I challenge people with If Christianity is just about me hearing a message from the pastor, that's an incomplete understanding of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is that people have been entrusted to my care, and and I've been entrusted to them so that we help each other in finding God and, and, and growing in our spirituality. In fact, the Bible doesn't put community secondary to the individual. We tend to be like individual needs to be whole first and then the community. God's promise to Abraham is what? I'm going to make you into a people that bless the rest of the people on the face of the earth. When I ask people, well, why? what was God's promise to Abraham or why was Abraham considered righteous? They'll say, well, you know, he believed God and his righteousness was, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then I'll say, what did Abraham believe in? They go, well, he believed in God. He believed in more than just God. He believed in God's promise. And God's mm-hmm. promise is Abraham would be made into a people. Christ went to the cross not just to take away our sins and not just to take us to heaven. He took away our sins so that we could be a people. And if you don't see your faith as an idea of being a people, then you won't gather with other people. You'll just do whatever feeds you. And as long as you're doing fine, that's great. I'm going a little long here, but this is the pastor side of me. This is one of the things that I'll hear people, and I know this is going to hurt somebody, but I just have to say it. People will say, I don't go to that church anymore because I wasn't there for four or five weeks and no one reached out to me. And I'd say that is sad 
but that's also a sign of your disconnect. Because if you're connected to a church, when you're gone four or five weeks, you're going to be calling the people that you pray for at that church, the people you bless when you show up on Sundays, the people you talk to about how's your marriage going, how are your kids doing, uh, what's going on with that addiction issue. So that's just as much a sign of your disconnect as it is the church's disconnect. We have to do something counterculture, which is to gather together to form meaningful relationships where I'm attending, not because it meets my needs, but because we are made more whole and more human in community. And even the sense of the concept, I have a very small church. Uh, We have one women's group, one men's group. And there are seasons when it's not fun to go to women's group because a woman came in who had mental illness. And for a while, she was struggling with that. And the people who understand the church just love on her, let her talk, minister to her. But they didn't go for their own needs. But if you went for your own needs, you'd be like, I'm not going to go back there again. We just listened to that woman talk. And, you know, there's just a stress. But if you believe the church is bigger than you, then you go with with purpose. This is the struggle we're dealing with with gathering. Online church can be great if you're still building a community, if you're still connecting with people, calling them, tweeting, posting, emailing, texting, you know, building relationship. If it's just to meet your personal spiritual need for more preaching, it's not enough. It's not the fullness of the body of Christ. So that's a long answer to that. But this is an area we all have to deal with as we're moving forward into this unknown world of online and in person. That's that's really helpful. And it's it's helpful just for me as a pastor to talk through what it's been like for your community and your congregation as well. Because I think we're all in it together in different ways. Yeah. And it's we will be, we will know exactly what to do 10 years from now when we look <laughs> back, but none of us know right now. We're all just yeah. and I really, we really want to be sensitive to it to not you know, falling off the cliff on one side or the other. I have dear, dear friends who when their church said, Hey, everybody come back in May of 2020, they were like, I can't go to this church. And, you know, like if you're not going to be thoughtful about it and, you know, realize we have a brand new baby and it's not a good idea for us, you know, we're, it's not that we hate Jesus. So we want to communicate with nuance, which social media is just so great for nuance. They they love nuance on social media. Well, we've really struggled. I'll just be honest, like, and and talking to many pastors, the congregations have dropped one third to one half uh, since across the board, however they handled it, whether they were even different political realities, we were very, much cautious online, masking more on that side. Uh, So we're all trying to figure out what to do here. But I I think this is a season, it's an opportunity to look at, well, what's the core of this? What are we really about? What does Christ really mean to us? And I have to be careful, though, not to judge people out of my own fear, because I get angry at God. I'm like, God, you know, there's cults bigger than our church. They believe in some goat on a mountain. And yet we can barely get people through the doors and what, what what's happening here. And so then I can preach to people and angry, you know, if you love God, you're going to show up. And But it's motivated by bitterness, by fear, by anger, by hurt. So I have to go to the Lord and say, you, you've always understood these people. You're not surprised by any of this. And that's the people you love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Moses interceded for the people that God was even frustrated with. We said, well, did God change his mind? I think... The Bible has those pictures of God saying, you know, I'm not going to work with these people, but I'm going to work with you, Moses. For Moses says, you know, work with me and these people. See me as those people. That's supposed to be our heart. I think it's in there that our advocacy is when it's the worst is not to grow the most bitter with people, but to identify with them and to be able to love them in this time that, yes, we are seeing people. They're not going anywhere. They're just barely making it, barely surviving. How do we reach them? I'm still praying. So I got lots of opinions, but in the practice, it's been very difficult for me. Mm. 
that I, I so appreciate that one of those last phrases you offered too, that people are going through it. You know, I think that everybody has had a hard time. I remember Daryl and I met with one of our mentors early on in the pandemic, and we were just kind of going on and on about how difficult this has been to be a parent, to be a pastor, and to navigate this, you know, very fraught political situation with our congregation that we love, but we can't gather with because it's not safe. And he was like, Courtney, Daryl, no one is having a good time. <laughs> just, I think about that all the time because I think yeah. it's so easy from our own vantage point to be like, why aren't people just X or where's my, you know, why is my neighbor behaving in this manner? And, and just to realize we've all kind of been through a rough season yeah. and it's been different rough for everyone, but it's been rough for everyone. Well, you know, this might help people. I read John seven. And when you read the beginning of John seven, it says that Jesus spent his time in Judea uh, excuse me, he spent his time in Galilee, that'd be north, and then there's Samaria if you go south, and there's Judea where Jerusalem is, but he spent his time north in Galilee, around Nazareth and Capernaum, because they were going to murder him in Judea. Now, that's interesting, because we say, well, Christ came to die for our sins, he shouldn't be afraid of anything. Well, Jesus set boundaries that he didn't go to the people who wanted to murder him until the Lord told him to do that, until the Father told him to. He set boundaries mm -hmm. of actually going to the lost, to the hungry, to the needy, to the forgotten, to the people who wanted to hear him, to the, the one. He left the 99 to go to the one. And some people have been raised with this idea that if you set boundaries, that you're doing something wrong because every day you need to be willing to die, right? Well, obviously, we've died and our lives are hidden in Christ, but we can live as Christ did, that Christ actually avoided the Pharisees. He often only spoke to them when they pursued him. And then also when he went to the temple three times a year. So we're in a pandemic. Some of us, you know, your work is terrible. I know for educators, people in the medical industry, you're barely making it. It's okay to set boundaries, to give your best energy to the people who give you life, to speak to the people who want to listen, to say, I'm not going to go to the temple to Jerusalem and have a bunch of people angry at me and want to kill me. Uh, that part is a part of following Jesus as well. And I think that's the other thing we're trying to do as pastors, as churches. There's a lot of things we can do, but right now I'm barely making. I have to tell the church, I pastored for 24 years. It's been the hardest season. I don't know how much more I can do this. So mm. this is what I'm doing. Every Sunday with intentionality, we are mm. gathering and we're doing our best. But I can't do some big thing for the future. I can't. I can't mobilize mm -hmm. us for some big Easter outreach. And if they love me, they're going to understand that. But if I'm doing this based on fear, then that's a bad thing. So parents, you know, you can say to your kids, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been this burnout. I love you. It's going to be okay. God is with us, but we're just going to do it the next step. That's all I can give mm -hmm. you. You know, you don't have to have, have them fear, you know, his mom falling apart or something, but mm -hmm. that's what we need to be incredibly honest because God has to make the difference. It has to be about his strength and our weakness, not about our resolve or how well we can tough through one of the worst events of many of our lifetimes. Grace, huh? Yeah. You're preaching yep. grace. Beginning uh, to end. I will take it. I will take it, sir. Thank you, Doug. It has been so good to be with you. If you caught us in the middle, this our guest today is Doug Bursch. He is the author of Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. He's a former radio host. He's a practicing pastor for 24 years, father of four. His wife likes plants. I learned that during the <laughs> podcast. Um, Doug, where can we find you? Where can we find your book if people want to follow up? Well, you just pray and you follow the glory cloud and you'll find me. No. <laughs> He's got a halo. You can't see yeah, it. Yeah. No. Um, by the way, on social media, I just 
post silly stuff too. So that's most much of my life. But you can go to uh, fairlyspiritual.org or postingpeace.org, or you can search Doug Birch and you'll find it. Uh, there's so many ways to avoid me, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I want to let you know what you do here. Just, I know we're ending this, but this podcast matters and it doesn't matter based on how many people listen to it. And you look at the analytics uh, it has value in the doing. You have blessed me in this time. It has fruit beyond anything you're aware of. So I want to encourage you in that. God sees what you're doing. He defends your work. He gives value to what you do. And it's such a gift to be able to be on this show. And it's a gift for people to be able to listen. And some of the people who probably love it the most don't ever say anything. They just assume you're doing okay. But remember that when you get accusations or when you get, you know, people get say something that's hurtful, that there's lots of people for you. And we're so proud of what you're doing because it matters greatly in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Doug, thank you. I will let that be our benediction. And it's been really good to see you face to face after all of our online interactions. Yeah, so this has thank been fun. You. Thank you. Blessings on your, on your ministry. And if you're ever down in Southern California, come hang out with us. Oh, definitely. All right. Bye. Friends, it was so great to have Doug here, pastor and author Doug Bursch on the podcast. And we're going to have a few of these author interviews coming up. So stay tuned. There are going to be um, some more authors coming to talk to us, authors and ministry leaders about what God has been teaching them, what they've been writing about, um, and just wonderful lessons for us all. So thanks for hanging out on this longer edition of the PCOM podcast. And I look forward to being with you again soon. Next week, Jeff Given will be with us and then I'll be back in two weeks. Happy Easter tide. I will be with you soon. Until then, take care, be well, and God bless. Mm-hmm.